So, Miss um, Ralich, I had a teacher. Well, first of all, hello. Hi, Mr. Linden. Okay, so I had a teacher in high school. I, I can't forget my pleasantries. Um, in my environmental science class in, in high school, who uh, I enjoyed him a lot, um, but we sort of had this understanding that I, it was okay if I was off topic and distracting if it was funny enough, um, which maybe wasn't the best way to run a class. But as a senior in high school, this was incredibly freeing for me. Sounds like the um, way that maybe you, you run your classes now, Mr. Linden. <laughs> I don't think we need to teacher. debate the topic too much. I, I think that we can, you know, uh, sort of let posterity decide if that's the case. Um, but, uh, you know, who's to say really how one runs a class? It's such a complicated question. Um, but uh, I remember one day in particular, um, when we were talking about the different layers of the soil um, and he brought up the uh, the layer that is called humus right the living part of the soil with you know microorganisms and stuff in it um, and people were joking and and very confused about whether it was pronounced humus or hummus um, and he was trying to sort of get people to sit, like get people back under control in the classroom which you know nowadays I, I i respect as a thing but at the time i was like this is the perfect opportunity for me to come in and say no he's pronounced hummus yes he's hummus um and everyone you know because believe it or not i did actually know a fair amount of things uh, about environmental science at least at the time some people believed me at first and were like is that is that right is that how you pronounce it uh, and the teacher i it was one of those moments where he just sort of looked at me and then just like slumped his head down and then was just like all right let's move on um, <laughs> and looking back on it do i feel bad about it i don't think i do and i think i should but i don't think i do <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, I guess the moral of the story is if I am a little bit rusty on my environmental science knowledge, um, it's because I was yelling about hummus uh, instead of, you know, learning the material. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that, bringing a little bit of humor to some otherwise at times dire topics. Um <laughs> You know my age because when I was in high school, we certainly did not have environmental science classes. It was like biology or nothing. <laughs> We're not sure about this chemistry stuff yet. <laughs> we did not have physics. Let's just put it that yeah. way. Yeah, um, just floating all over the place. Yeah. Um, well, let's introduce our topic for the week. Um, yeah. I'll introduce the topic and then you can introduce the show. How about that? Sure. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Historically Speaking with me, Mr. Linden. And me, Ms. Ratledge. Where we explore the history behind the topics in this week. And, and this week we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about climate change because uh, it has been five years since the Paris Climate Accords were signed. They were signed on December 12th of 2015. Um, and we just passed that anniversary, of course, this past week. Um, and so we thought it would be a good time to discuss the history behind what the United States has traditionally done about climate change and why it is that we are not a part of the Paris Climate Agreement 
anymore, despite the fact that we signed it back in 2015. Uh, so, so before we start into what the Paris Climate Accords are, I thought it would be important just to kind of note what's going on with climate right now. So very quickly, I don't think it's any surprise, things aren't looking so great, the climate. Um, in fact, it's been actually since the 1850s that we've known this. There was an Irish physicist um, back, what, over 150 years ago that said, you know, carbon dioxide creates warming in the planet. So we've known this for quite, quite some time. It was in 1939 that they published a paper that said humankind is responsible for, can be responsible for, for warming, right? And um, and what happens is that there are, there's carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions that are emitted into the atmosphere. And it creates what is called a greenhouse effect, right? Where the, these emissions go up and then it warms the atmosphere and it warms the entire planet to some extent. Um, one of my favorite quotes is, is from a, a senator, a congressman from Ohio, back in the seventies where he says something to the effect of like, why are we calling it the greenhouse effect? Greenhouses are delightful. Like this is horrifying. <laughs> we should be calling this the microwave effect <laughs> mm -hmm. um, because it seems like we're getting cooked. And um, you know, perhaps things would be different on climate if we did call it the microwave effect many years ago instead of the greenhouse effect. And, and yet it does, it does mirror greenhouse in that it allows uh, light in and then traps the energy that's being re-radiated out from the stuff inside, um, which is, it's not that there's more heat coming from the sun or something like that. It's that it's trapping the stuff that should be re-radiated out into space. Precisely, precisely, right? Um, and so what's happened, obviously, is, is that we've had significant weather events due to, due to the overall warming of the atmosphere, which is creating climate change, right? Where we have... Yeah more hurricanes, the, the Arctic is warming, for example, which is raising sea level, which is changing the jet stream, which is giving us more hurricanes, more fires, right, in California, um, mm -hmm. more extreme weather events. And so, um, and, you know, and of course, it's not a singular country, so there has to be global agreements about it. So, um, Mr. Lennon, you know some stuff about the Paris Climate Agreement. Do you wanna tell us about why it's significant and, or actually like what it did and why it's significant? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Paris Climate Agreement is, uh, it is the latest in a series of agreements that have been made since the 1990s uh, through a UN committee on on environment. Um, but suffice it to say, this is the most uh, expansive agreement that we've had out of uh, out of any of the ones that have come before. It, it was signed in 2015, as we said, uh, and. Basically, uh, at that point, there had been a previous set of agreements on how to limit the, the uh, climate change and the, the uh, emitting of greenhouse gases uh, while still allowing for economic development, particularly in, in developing countries, called the Kyoto Protocols, which the, uh, the Clinton administration had signed on to. But by 2015, a, or sorry, the Clinton administration had been involved in negotiating and then didn't ratify. My apologies. It's a it's a Treaty of Versailles situation, um, where where they went to the meeting and helped negotiate the whole thing and then brought it home and didn't ratify it. Um, but uh, a lot of countries, not just the U.S., uh, were signing off of the Kyoto Protocols by 2015, and there was basically this crisis of like, if people are bailing on this agreement 
what's the future of, of climate, uh, co cooperation on the issue of climate going to look like? And so 2015, uh, the convention on climate was held in uh, Paris, this, this UN convention, and they passed a, uh, a broad framework um, with a lot of different aspects to it. Um, specifically, uh, one of the stated goals is to limit the actual warming effect of the, the climate change to well below two degrees Celsius is one of the things they said. Um, they want to achieve a climate neutral world by mid-century. Um, and uh, it's based around the idea that each of the individual countries that are a part of it, each of the individual nations, have what are called NDCs, or Nationally Determined Contributions, to this program, uh, which are, the idea is that the smaller countries can make some small changes that are big for proportional for them, and the bigger countries make proportionally bigger changes uh, to try to make sure everyone is pulling in the same direction and, and pulling fairly according to their weight. Um, in terms of mitigating climate. And is the United States part of this agreement in 2020? Well, they were. They were. <laughs> <laughs> At least we ratified this one in the first place. Um, but no, the, uh, the United States withdrew from it. Uh, President Trump withdrew the US from it on the fastest possible timeline. Uh, but the, the question still Which remains. Which means that we, just, uh, we actually just got out. It took us a long time, despite the fact that he yeah. said that was like one of the first things he did. Taking us a long time. Yeah, to get exactly. Um, now, uh, President-elect Joe Biden is saying that he would like to re-enter uh, the climate agreement, and there's this sort of awkward moment of you know the guy who stormed out of the party coming back and being like, "Hey, um, sorry, I'm having a bad night," you know, like whatever it is, um, just sort of awkwardly coming back, uh, cap in hand, uh, trying to to rejoin the agreement. Yeah. I think it's so one thing that I wanted to talk about was kind of the, the history behind this, because even though the, the Paris Climate Agreement was actually the first um, uh, multinational agreement, major multinational agreement on climate that the United States had had actually signed off on, it's not actually the first time that the United States has been deeply involved in trying to do something about climate change. I mean, I think today it's pretty normal to think like, oh, this is a partisan issue. Um, you know, Republicans think this one way and Democrats think this other way. And, you know, if we just had a Democrat in the office, then we would have we would do something about climate and with a Republican. We won't have to do something about climate. Um, but I think that if you look at the history, it's actually a lot more um, nuanced and complex than that. So I'd like to take a little time just to kind of do a slow walk, Please. slow walk through this history. Mm -hmm. Okay with you? A stroll. A stroll. <laughs> um, so um, one thing I'd also just like to mention is, is that um, there's a really great article. Actually, there's a great podcast called How to Save a Planet um, that I've been listening to, if anybody wants to listen to that. And then there's this amazing article that I read a couple, I, guess, I think it came out last year, called Losing Earth by a journalist named Nathaniel Rich, um, where a lot of the information that I'm about to tell you comes from. So I just wanted to give props to that. Um, cool. But there's something I think you'll like. So there's this group. Have you ever heard of this group called the Jasons? No. No. <laughs> Not Jason no. Bourne, but the Jasons. Okay. It sounds, it sounds like if Jason and the Argonauts, if Jason had been a little bit more self-centered, it would have been like <laughs> Jason and the Jasons. Jasons and the Jasons. Yeah. I, I, I wish I knew the, the, the reason behind this. We, we need a scientist on here for 
you know, scientific words, but the Jasons were kind of an elite group of scientists. Actually, they were very mysterious as well. And they had traditionally worked mm. on major... Is it a joke on Masons? <laughs> Maybe. Did they just mistype Masons? M and J are next to each other on the keyboard. Mm, it could be. I'm sure there is some scientific connotation for Jason that we neither of us are smart enough to figure out at this exact moment. But nonetheless, um, they, yeah, they had traditionally worked on kind of major defense projects for the government. Um, so things like, you know, what would happen in a nuclear fallout or how would we deal with this certain, um, you know, massive poisoning of the population or something like that. They actually got a pretty negative name because they were involved in the Vietnam War and, and figuring out how to do some bombings of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And it was exposed during the Pentagon Papers. Um, <clears throat> but they also notably, um, you know, kind of changed their tune a little bit and they started working on climate science in the 1970s. Um, in fact, many scientists will tell you that, you know, there really have been no scientific breakthroughs on climate since the late 1970s. There's certainly been differing understandings of, of what climate, what um, increased emissions will do to climate and where um, those, those, you know, issues will happen. Um, but in terms of, you know, the actual science, it hasn't changed much since the 1970s. Um, so in terms of like the the central mechanism of of what's going on, yeah, exactly. Like this whole kind of conversation of denialism, like there's no such thing as there's still a question as to whether or not humans are causing climate change. That that theory has been yeah. debunked for a long time, right? Um, in fact, it was never actually even a theory until much more recently. Um, I also think it's important to note that, um, you know, the environment has actually always been a bipartisan issue. Uh, in fact, our, you know, our, our first quote unquote environmental president was a Republican. It was Theodore Roosevelt um, back at the turn of the century, who was famous for uh, starting the Forest Service and establishing several national parks and national monuments, et cetera. Um, putting in many wildlife refugees, refuges. Um, and then our probably our second most important environmental president was Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. I know your favorite, Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> this is slander. This is slander. Um, yeah. I, I said he did a, a good job improving relations with China, and I have been slandered as a Nixon lover. Um. Well, he did do a lot for the environment, or at least he signed off on a lot of bills. In fact, he actually pushed, you know, Congress to even go a little bit further. He did things like sign the Clean Air and Clean Water Act in the 1970s, set up the Environmental Protection Agency and the Endangered Species Act. Like that all happens in the 70s. So again, thinking from a 2020 lens and thinking about the environment is something that is not within the Republican realm, I think is not looking at the history at all. So how does this change? I know you're wondering, Mr. Linden. I, I was, you took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> um, really, I mean, I think, so Reagan, I would say is the number one reason. Um, he is, if we think about the, what happens with, within the, the Reagan administration, um, you know, he famously said like the, you know, he didn't say this, but it's something like the dirtiest words in the American language are, you know, I'm the government and I'm here to help. He was really 
anti-regulation um, and felt like we talked about this in one of their other podcasts about stagflation. He felt like the reason why, you know, there was such economic duress at the end of the 1970s and with stagflation was because the government had overregulated so many things um, and started saying, you know, the, 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 is the federal government getting involved in too many different issues, the environment being one of them, and we need to take a step back and allow people to um, kind of, you know, do their own thing. So that was one thing. And then the second thing is, is that, um, you know, in the 1970s, there were a series, and in the 1980s, there was a series of pretty prominent congressional hearings on the issue of climate. And um, <clears throat> people like, uh, at that time, Senator Al Gore, um, that were, were hosting committee hearings um, in which all these scientists were saying the same thing and it was pretty prominent, you know, it's all over the news and stuff like that. But politicians kind of quickly realized, well, not quickly, I would say, it took a while, but, you know, this is kind of an intractable problem. There is no clear solution as to what exactly to do about something that is so deeply entwined with the way of life and the way that, yeah. you know, we run our economy. And so I think one major piece is just that politicians started getting scared. They didn't want to have their name attached to something that may fail. And so rather than trying to tackle a problem that was uh, bigger than them or, you know, take off a few bites and see if they could fix it, they more started to say, um, this isn't a problem so much that we need to worry about. There's a, a classic sort of idea in economics that I think really relates here, which is that uh, when you have an issue that matters in one direction a lot more to a small organized group than to a large dispersed group. Um, the small organized group tends to get their way um, because it's, and the small organized group that I'm talking about is people who have a real interest in continuing to use uh, fossil fuels and, and emitting carbon in a, in a large way um, because it is the, you know, a well-funded series of connected industries um, that make up a minority of, of the, the American people who it is life or death for them whether uh, certain regulations pass or don't pass. Um, you know, it, there's no one for whom restrictions on oil drilling is going to matter more than oil companies. Um, and while it may be important to a lot of American voters uh, what, uh, what happens with the climate, they're probably not spending, you know, billions of dollars on a daily basis, or not on a daily basis, on a yearly basis, to make sure that that legislation passes, right? Yeah. Um, so the, especially if politicians are scared that they may not succeed, and they know that there are powerful people trying to make sure that this legislation doesn't succeed, um, it's not a winning bid uh, for a lot of politicians. Right. And interestingly, you know, the oil and gas industry was initially gung ho, you know, they did their own studies and they were supportive of kind of atta uh, attacking the problem and doing something about it, like figuring out how to diversify, figuring out how to come up with solutions and adapt, etc. But um, it was kind of in the hesitation of politicians to do anything that the oil and gas industry got the signal that actually it was in their best interest to stop pushing forward on this. If politicians, if the government wasn't gonna do anything about it and not push any regulation, well then it was much better for them to kind of 
start this campaign of denial and mm-hmm. pulling the truth back than going full force ahead and not having uh, the government lead the way. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I, th- I think that's really interesting because in some ways, you know, the American Petroleum Institute and Exxon and things like that were in, up front or the forefront of this back in the 1950s and 60s. And now, of course, they've been the ones that have been kind of planning these denialism campaigns for years now. I, I think nowadays we see some sort of reversion to the thing, the original form, but in a more sinister way, um, because there are a lot of major oil companies who are investing heavily in things like developing solar, developing geothermal, and, and all that stuff. But the motivation there is not necessarily to roll out cheap solar to people um, and undercut their own profits. It's so that they, one, have an alternative if they run out of you know, plan A. Um, and two, it's blocking other people from from getting patents and things like that on these kinds of technologies. So it's it's sort of playing defense by playing offense mm-hmm. um, for a lot of these major petro com- companies that they're uh, that they're investing. You know, so they can run ads saying we're investing in a cleaner future, but in reality, they're doing that research so that uh, one, you know, they they're covered if uh, if they run out of oil, and and two, uh, so that other people don't beat them to it. Mm-hmm. So the beginning of the um, of the kind of like the beginning of the end in terms of really being making a significant shift on climate, I think you put a pin in it on in the year of 1988 because that is when um, George W. George H. W. Bush, sorry, senior, um, was running for election. He had been the vice president under Reagan, and again they had been kind of slow walking this thing on climate and all these things that change and James Hansen had been in front of the Senate many times and they put together some international, the IPCC was created um, to have an international conference on this and George Bush had said in his campaign, you know, something something to the effect of, you know, well, the greenhouse effect needs the White House effect, you know, we'll come in and we'll solve this problem with the greenhouse gases. Um, <laughs> but uh but within a year of being in office, he had he wasn't much of an environmentalist anyways, and more importantly, there were enough other things going on and enough politicians that had said, you know, maybe this isn't something you want to stick your neck out on, um, that by the, the first kind of major IPCC event in 1989, which was in, I think, the Netherlands, the United States went, sent delegates, negotiated, and did not sign on. Um, and I think kind of a telling um, statistic is is that since 1989, we have more carbon in the air or emissions in the air since 1989 to 2020 than we had prior to that. In other words, the amount of emissions mm-hmm. in the atmosphere have doubled since that time period. Um, and the U.S. is only surpassed by China in terms of uh total emissions um, nowadays. And it, it took quite a while for China to overtake the U.S. But uh, And maybe this is partially because China has a more authoritarian kind of regime, but when they want to make reforms, uh, they can do it a little faster than the U.S. has. At least they've shown that things like uh, air pollution in major cities, they can move more quickly on that than, than the U.S. has. Uh, not to say that 
that China is a good actor when it comes to uh, climate policy. But um, it's an interesting dynamic between the U.S. and China, both trying to position themselves as, even though they are the major emitters, the two largest emitters, both of them are also trying to position themselves as, as sort of leaders on the issue, or at least they were until the United States pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Um, so there's a lot of speculation right now about whether if the U.S. or when the U.S. rejoins, because it does look like we're going to rejoin, um, will the U.S. command the same kind of influence in the agreement that they would have beforehand? Um, and in this sort of larger realpolitik question of, uh, of power politics between the U.S. and China, is this, did we cede the floor to China on this particular issue? Yeah. Which is an interesting question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, during the Obama administration, we had actually managed to reduce some emissions um, due to several different uh, pieces of legislation that had been passed. And we were the United States, not the world. The world's emissions have been going up, but the United States emissions have been going down. And, um, you know, I think another interesting question is just when we got into the climate guards, uh, the reason why Trump was able to roll them back so quickly is because they were never actually signed off by the, the Senate, mm -hmm. despite the fact that it was a treaty. It was not a, a quote unquote legally binding treaty. And so it was an executive action. And so if, yeah. if Biden goes back in on the climate accords, you know, will this have to be assigned? Will this have to be signed off by Congress? Um, presumably, no. I would assume that he would go back in just as the executive action. Um, kind of way that, that Obama had originally done it. But certainly if it if it is, it does need to be ratified by the Senate, that is a huge component. Huge obstacle. And I, I, I think climate is fits into this this sort of category of issues that we are facing as a as a world right now. That you know, if we take a real grand view of history, uh, we have sort of initially uh, issues that that uh, are centered on a locality, right? Like a town or a city or something like that. And then we progress into, you know, empires and things like that and, and that level of, of problems. And then most of the, the, like, the last couple of centuries have been about the rise of the nation state, right? Uh, the idea of individual nations having autonomy over their own, their own borders and their issues internally and being able to make their own decisions about their themselves right we're moving away from colonialism into uh you know this idea of autonomy that that you get to make your own decisions and climate along with things like uh the internet along with things like uh the oceans uh growing more polluted um are things that cannot be dealt with on an na individual nation level. They have to be dealt with on a global level. And so when you have a whole world political and economic system based around the idea of people, and in this case, you know, the individual actors are nation states acting in their own self-interest, you get all sorts of crazy incentives, none of which lead to actually reducing the problem. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is if uh, my neighbor starts slowing down their economic development to, uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. If I ramp it up and don't care about the greenhouse gas emissions, I might be able to make more money. Uh, and it is, uh, it's one of those, you know, 
economic games that you play, like the prisoner's dilemma or something like that, where you can benefit off of other parties doing the responsible thing. But it's if everyone does that, then everyone loses in the long term. Yeah, well, certainly. And that's been at the crux of these major climate accords. And, and you know, most notably, too, climate change is not impacting every nation or every community the same, of course. Even within the United States, states are dealing with it differently. Communities are dealing with it differently. Um, uh, and, you know, another obviously prominent thing in economics is just discounting for the future, right? And so if if the impacts of climate are are closer in the future, for example, if you're living on a, on, on a coastal area, um, then you're going to take it a lot more seriously than someone that still sees the impacts of climate as something in the distant future or doesn't even see it at all. And I think that's been one of the biggest struggles with dealing with this problem is humans don't really do well with um, valuing the future. We just don't. So we've spent a lot of time here talking about how uh, there is developing a, a history of denying climate, uh, a, a history of people not being willing to put themselves out, uh, stick their necks out for the issue of climate. We talked about California burning to the ground and the flooding of, of Pacific nations, right? So is there a, is there a future here? Is there, is there a positive future here, right? Is there, what's, what's the cause for optimism? Yeah, I think there's actually quite a bit. Um, the first time that we're going to have a cabinet-level climate czar is with Joe Biden's administration, um, with John Kerry. The official position, climate czar. The official position of climate czar. That's a big deal. Um, I mean, that's a bureau- bureaucratic big deal. But nonetheless, it's a big deal. No. Um, <clears throat> but no, I think there's actually a ton of optimism. Um, you know, one thing that America or non-Americans people are not great at is, again, valuing the future. But we are really great at, it's my students are, and I am myself too, at getting things done at the last minute right (laughs) there's something to be said of procrastination that you learn at the age of 14 really just lasts (laughs) sort of so long in your life right and so i think that that you know i don't i don't i'm not necessarily in the camp of like oh we'll just adapt our way out of it or we'll technologically figure it out but i do think that um you know enough has happened that has been visible climate shifts in the past probably 10 years that uh, the amount of people and the amount of resources that are focused on this space at this point are enormous. Um, again, to the point, like you were saying before, that oil and gas uh, industries are, are kind of shifting their thinking largely to solar and other renewables. Um, so I think that that is a huge cause for optimism. Yeah, and I, I think when people talk about you know technology getting us out of this, they often think about like you know some magical way of sequestering carbon in in some magic machine or something like that. I I think the the more realistic way that technology makes makes the future work is um, incremental changes in pricing of things like solar and things like wind power to the point where it is uh, economically viable not only for people in America to afford but that it actually is the better option for developing nations. Uh, because one of the big 
issues right now, and I know we're talking about optimism, uh, but is that, you know, the U.S. made its industrial revolution by ravaging its own environment. And now we're turning to other developing nations and saying, hey, stop doing what we just what we did to become you know, a major economic power. But if there are options of how to develop in a sustainable way and in a way that uh, keeps the environments intact and continuing to produce value for the different, you know, developing nations of the world, they could be even better off than the countries that did ravage their own environment mm -hmm. to, uh, to industrialize. Absolutely. Like leapfrog into the future, right? Leapfrog over the other, the other technologies. I think it's also notable that, you know, we've had a four years of a president that truly has been catastrophic for the environment and those things that have been rolled back during the Trump administration. And yet, um, you know, uh, like a, an organization like Earth Justice has said something like 200 lawsuits against the Trump administration. Um, but yet they have demonstrated time and time again that the, that the environmental laws that are on the books are actually quite strong and have not mm -hmm. been rolled back by judges, despite the the many, many efforts um, that have been pushed from the administration. And I guess I, I take hope in that because I feel like that demonstrates that, you know, because again, because the Trump administration was not very successful in many of their efforts, um, that we won't see that kind of like all out assault again. In fact, I think we could have maybe reached, I'm hoping, Maybe this is mm -hmm. just me hoping, but hoping that we have this reached is the our, optimism section. This is the optimism, our partisan divide on environment, um, and we could be coming back, you know, towards some sort of center line with folks that are, you know, on both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans, saying, you know, again, clean air, clean water, uh, you know, reliable weather system. These are not political issues. I would like to know that it's not going to snow in June, for example, right? Right. And, and the ideal, you know, we, we so often deride the two-party system for being a race to the bottom in some ways, um, trying to outdo each other in all the wrong ways. But if we can get a situation where the parties are trying to convince the public that they will do more than the other party for climate, and they're both, you know, upping the ante more and more, Sounds good to me. Mm -hmm. Or if it could just be not a partisan issue, because that's well, the that's number it, one dude. reason that's why it. they fight. It's like, oh, the Republicans said they do that. We're not doing that. Oh, the Democrats said we're doing that. No, we're not doing that. So That's true. All right. Um, well, uh, thank you all very much for listening today uh, as we uh, took a, a brief stroll through, uh, through the history of, of climate. Uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. I get to do something that you did to me last week. Okay. I'm going to have to say, thank you, Mr. Linden, for joining me on this show. <laughs> All right. Um, I uh, will go over here and admire the, the humus, the humus of the soil over here um, and just cry a little bit because uh, we both know it is your show. So. <laughs> Not even close. Thank you, Mr. Linden, for hosting. Thank you, Miss Ratledge. Thank you for being me. a wonderful co-host. Yeah. Um, and thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye. Mm -hmm.